Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by Ozhan Dincher, who goes by Oz. Oz is a professor and the director of the Institute for Corruption Studies at Illinois State University. Oz, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Maybe I can start out just by asking you to say a little bit about how you became interested in the topic of corruption. What was your start as a researcher in this field? It's, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, I was taking a labor economics class when I was doing my PhD, and we were supposed to write a literature review when I picked up the topic of efficiency wage hypothesis. When I was reading at several papers on efficiency wage hypothesis, I saw a couple of papers on the relationship between public sector wages and corruption that attracted my attention. I started reading more and more and more. Sorry, may I interrupt you just for a moment? Not all of our listeners might know what the efficiency wage hypothesis is. Could you maybe just explain that and then explain how that related to your sure, growing interest in corruption? Uh, it's, it started with Akerlof. Actually, I, if I give you an anecdote, it's even better. So when Janet Yellen and Akerlof, when they moved to California, they started looking for a babysitter. And when they gave an ad to the newspaper, they put an hourly wage which is higher than the ongoing babysitting wage and they assumed they would attract better candidates. This is the basic idea behind the fair wage hypothesis. And uh, there are a couple of papers in the literature on how public sector wages affect corruption and one of those papers were uh, comparing how people behave, whether they are in uh, they behave in maximizing or satisfying behavior. The maximizing behavior is uh, basically uh, uh, assuming that people will try to maximize their expected future income, so they're going to st- steal as much as possible. The satisfying hypothesis is more aligned with the efficiency wage hypothesis. Everybody has a reservation wage in their minds, and as long as they get paid that amount, they're not going to steal. And there was a paper by Beatrice Weider, and she found in favor of the satisfying hypothesis, if I'm not mistaken. But after reading those papers, I started reading more and more on corruption. And I'm also from one of the most corrupt countries in the world, which is Turkey. And uh, tracking down the corruption in Turkey also is interesting. And once you start, you never stop. It's like It's like Barrow says about growth economics. Once you start studying growth economics, you cannot stop. Once you start studying corruption, you cannot stop. So I want to know a little bit about the kinds of work that you've done. Since you you got this interest in graduate school, you came into it with a focus on public sector wages and the efficiency wage hypothesis. Has that remained a focus of your work or have your interests developed in different directions? It actually changed completely. By training, I'm a growth economist, so I, I, I'm inter- development and growth economist. I'm interested in economic growth. I'm interested in uh, economic developments. I started with uh, how does corruption affect economic growth and development. 
that. And then, then I switched to the measurement issues more than the consequences of corruptions, because we do need better measures of corruption across countries, across U.S. states, all over time. Uh, I started working on these issues, and currently uh, my main focus is the measurement. So I'd love to hear a little bit more, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, about those measurement issues. So many people who work in this field are aware that at least cross-nationally, we rely substantially on perception-based indicators, sometimes combined with survey-based indicators, things like Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index and Global Corruption Barometer, the Worldwide Governance Indicators, and, and so forth. And then you mentioned U.S. states. There are some measures that are based very much on convictions data, criminal convictions by the Department of Justice. There are other measures that are also more survey-based or through an evaluation by NGOs and institutions. So say a little bit about why you felt like there was important additional work to do on the measurement issue. When you started thinking about this and you looked at these existing measures, the cross-national measures and the ones that are focused on the United States, what did you find unsatisfying about them? What did you think that we needed to do instead or in addition? My greatest dissatisfaction with the international measures, right after the Italians convicted Berlusconi for crimes related to corruption, at that year I looked at the Transparency International's index and I, Turkey either appeared to be less corrupt than Italy or very close. That really bothered me a lot because at that point, we were electing corrupt politicians over and over and over. At the same time, Italians were convicting them. And you're looking at that index, hey, Italy and Turkey are the same. No, we're not. I mean, this is this big discrepancy happening here. So we need better measures. Unfortunately, at the international level, you don't have a lot of options. So one of the things you can do is looking at news reportings. So uh, I started doing that. I started with uh, New York Times following Ed Glazer and Claudia Golden's article. They simply searched for the verbs corrupt, bribe, fraud, so on and so forth, and they counted the number of articles appear annually in New York Times. I had an army of minions, the graduate assistants. We did the same thing. We followed the Glazer uh, and Golden's and Ganskos methodology. But we also read these articles and weeded out the uh, false positives. And then we started doing the same thing for some major international newspapers. We uh, coded Le Monde in France. Uh, the digitized archives are available going back to 45. Uh, we coded a major Turkish newspaper. This summer, we're going to code Irish Times. And then a colleague of mine in Germany is coding uh, FAZ, which is uh, the major German newspaper. And then hopefully, we're going to start co uh, coding an Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera or La Repubblica, depending on what my Italian colleagues will decide to do. The interesting thing that I found, just looking at the uh, Turkish news-based index and the French news-based index, the correlation coefficients are either very weak or even negative when you look at the last 20 years of uh, World Bank indicators. So, in fact, the, according to the Le Monde index, the correlation coefficient is negative, very close to zero with the uh, World Bank what is it called? World Bank? The Control of Corruption Indicator, yeah. the World Wide Governance Indicator. Yes. Yeah. So just I want to make sure I understand our listeners and yeah. understand what you're saying. So when you are looking at articles in Le Monde or the New York Times, 
you're not looking domestically. These aren't indexes for France or the United States. That's a separate project that you have. Mm -hmm. You're looking for met for mentions in these news publications of corruption in other countries. No, in France. In France. In okay, France. In yeah. France. Yeah, Le Monde measures just okay, the corruption so in France. I so that was yeah. my. I'm glad yeah. I clarified. So Le Monde, so Le Monde is measuring. You're looking just at the level of corruption in France by the frequency of mentions of the term corruption in France, uh -huh. and then you're comparing this to the worldwide governance indicators. Yes. Score for France, mm -hmm. and you're seeing if they move together or yeah, not. Yeah, and they're not. So that doesn't mean this news-based index is better than the uh, world governance indicators. But it definitely tells us something about the intertemporal uh, usability of the worldwide governance indicators. Is it better? I don't know. So just to pick up on something you said before, though, if your concern with respect to the Corruption Perceptions Index, mm -hmm. it could have been the Worldwide Governance Indicators as well, they're very yeah. similar, was that when the Italians were convicting Berlusconi, they were getting similar mm -hmm. scores to Turkey. One hypothesis is that when there's a lot of reporting about corruption, the mm -hmm. perception of corruption is, is worse. Mm -hmm. People say right now that this might be happening in Brazil because yeah. Brazil's scores on the Corruption Perceptions Index seem to have been getting worse in the last couple years, mm -hmm. but that's coincided with Brazil actually mm -hmm taking more action, might you be concerned that when in France, Le Monde is reporting, is, is discussing corruption a lot in its stories, that's because they've actually taken action, there's a big trial, someone's going to jail because of high levels of corruption. So that's mm -hmm. one concern. Mm -hmm. A second concern, I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it, is that these international perception measures mm -hmm. are very sticky over time. We do, they're basically, if you drew for the France line, it would probably look like just a flat line. It is. Whereas with news reporting, I would imagine there's a lot of variation. So it doesn't surprise me that much that you don't get very much correlation intertemporally because one doesn't change much over time and the other bounces around, let's hypothesize, randomly. So I want to put, so those are, I suppose, two concerns I have about the news measure. The first one is, mightn't you have the problem that you worried about with these perception measures, but even more intensely, because what you're actually picking up is coverage often of anti-corruption action or the exposure of corruption. And second, aren't we worried that actually, if you're just looking at a correlation with a very stable perceptions index, the very stable perceptions might be closer to accurate, and you're just getting kind of random noise in news coverage? Let me go to Turkey for this. So, because I'm more familiar with the, what's happening in Turkey than France. So we have the same index for, same news-based index for uh, Turkey. If you look at World Bank or Transparency International or anything, the Turkey's index is pretty flat too. The interesting thing is Turkey is becoming more and more corrupt, especially if you look at the, the time period between 95 and 2015, you're talking about about 20 years. And we do have increasing corruption in Turkey. And that news-based index captures that. Of course, there's going to be a lot of fluctuations. One way of dealing with it is also reporting of corruption and the time of the crime. So one way of smoothing the data is taking the uh, two-year forward-moving averages. And when you do that, you actually do see what is happening. The other one is, are the major scandals being reported? Another advantage of uh, using a newspaper is the, if the crime is small, 
it's going to be reported only once or twice. If the crime is committed by a prime minister, then it's going to be bombarded in the newspaper. So that will catch how important the personality is, how important the personality is for the country's politics and the economics. So I do like the, the newspaper index more than the, the perception spaces in the seas of the World Bank and or the other institutions. And I tried doing some empirical analyses and see if the data support the theory. You know, just standard theory tells us that corruption is bad for economic growth. Corruption is bad for income inequality. So the Turkish data behave beautifully. Corruption lowers economic growth. Corruption increases infant mortality. Corruption increases military spending. Several different theories you can test, and whatever theory you test, the data behave accordingly. This gives me hope when it comes to using. I tried the French data only for the growth. It worked, but I haven't tried anything else. I uh, French, we have good data on France when it comes to income distribution. I'm, that's my next project. U.S. data for New York Times. We, we coded New York Times for 100 years. I did try the U.S. data around, I estimated some growth regressions, some inequality regressions. Again, data behave according to what the theory says. So these give me hope, honestly. But you're right. I mean, there's going to be noise in the data. We try to block that noise by doing this. So if a politician accuses another politician of being corrupt, we don't count it in, this, in our data set. The only uh, news articles we count are indictments, trials, convictions, or uh, investigative stories run by the uh, newspaper. So we try to block the noise, but you will have some noise in the data. But as you know, you know, corruption is immeasurable, and we're trying to measure something immeasurable. How much are you concerned with this sort of data? About, about using your technique on countries, possibly including Turkey, uh, that don't necessarily have complete press freedom, right? Because part of what you're picking up may be underlying corrupt behavior, but part of what you're picking up is reporting on corrupt behavior. So I suppose one might have two concerns that point in opposite directions, but either could be true. One is that in a country without much press freedom, or let's say where press freedom is getting worse, you get more and more suppression of media stories on corruption, so it looks like corruption is going down, but actually what you're seeing is suppression of those stories. The opposite possibility is that in some countries that are becoming progressively more authoritarian, corruption or anti-corruption is weaponized, and they deliberately try to play up stories about corruption among political opponents or others that they want to crack down on, and so you would see what looks like an increase in corruption as measured by press stories, but this would actually be driven by uh, and a kind of an authoritarian propaganda campaign. So you clearly thought much more about this than I have, maybe especially in the context of Turkey. But how much of that, let's focus on Turkey specifically, um, how much of that development uh, causes you worries about using this measure to, to detect intertemporal changes in corruption in Turkey, given that over the same time period, we have concerns that the press environment in Turkey has also been changing. You're absolutely right. That's actually one of the reasons you can you can use this this type of measure only in certain countries. Like you cannot use this in Spain. Most of the newspapers in Spain are affiliated with a political party. So there's it's free press, but it's not unbiased press. I was worried when we started coding uh, the newspaper in Turkey, but then I started digging up more. 
we had two choices uh, in Turkey. There's two newspapers, the, uh, digitized, digitized archives are available going back to early 1900s. One of them is owned by a major corporation. It was owned by a big family before that. And, but that family was always affiliated with some major corporation. The newspaper we coded was owned by a foundation, non-profit, and the reporters and the columnists of that newspaper define as they keep going to prison, whoever is in the government, but they never are shy of reporting. So I was confident on that front. But it is a liberal newspaper, so there is a chance of that newspaper being biased, but we're lucky on that front because social democrats were almost never in government in Turkey. <laughs> so social democrats or the, the left was in government in Turkey only for a couple of years solo and a couple of years as the small partner of the coalition. And even those years, uh, the mayor of Istanbul was uh, from the Social Democrat Party and he was corrupt. And uh, that newspaper reported that corruption heavily. So I'm not very concerned about the Turkish data. But again, you know, coding US, coding France, how interesting is it? To me, the more interesting measures of corruption over the last 50, 60 years is Brazil, Mexico, or an African country, or a Middle Eastern country. But unfortunately, it is impossible to find a newspaper which is not affiliated with an industry, or if it's a lot of the times, like history of Brazil, the history of military takeovers, the country is not democratic, so the, the press is not free. So it's impossible to code this. And it still gives us some information. It, Italy will be interesting, but Ireland, England, I think we're done after that, really. I mean, you don't have a lot of choices. So for a limited amount of countries, we will have a nice time series data measuring corruption, but that will be it, unfortunately. Have you started to give some thought, maybe you haven't gotten there yet, about other alternatives for measuring corruption cross-nationally that are not the existing perception indices, which have a bunch of problems that you and others have talked about. And as you just said, you've come up with a kind of clever way to measure intertemporally, solely within countries, not across countries, changes in the prevalence of corruption using media reporting. But as you say, the places where we get the best data are maybe the places where we're least interested, not completely, but yeah. you know, to some extent. So have you started to at least give it a preliminary thought to what you or the next generation of researchers might do on the measurement issue to to come up with something better than our existing perception survey indexes for cross-national comparisons? Or is it just, you think this is the best we're ever going to do? I think among the currently available indices, World Bank enterprise surveys are a valuable source. Uh, they directly ask the firms about their experiences with uh, corrupt public officials. But unfortunately, these surveys, they, they don't capture a lot of countries. So that's another problem. So perhaps we should put pressure on World Bank to actually make it more uh, widespread and, and not limit it only to certain African and Latin American countries or Middle Eastern countries, but make it to the mid-level countries. I don't, like, I don't think a World, by, World Bank Enterprise Survey for Turkey exists, or I don't think it exists for Mexico. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure either. We, yeah. we can look we can that look, up. We we readers, look. you are listeners, you can look it up. And also, those surveys are not done annually. They're very expensive yes. to field. I'm actually going to change the topic a little bit, but Please. I'm actually thinking about uh, implementing 
a similar survey at the state level in Turkey, in, in the United States. Mm. So I'm, I'm applying for funding to start with a state like Illinois or Florida first, an enterprise survey, and see what kind of results I will get, what kind of response rate, and then perhaps make it for 50 U.S. states. Because, uh, you know, I talked before, it's, I, in my opinion, the differences across U.S. states sometimes are larger than differences across countries. So if you want to test any kind of theory on corruption, U.S. states is a goldmine because you have good, good macro data, good micro data. And if you can measure corruption in, across U.S. states, you can test these theories uh, a lot uh, easier and a lot better than using cross-country data. I'm glad you brought that up because that was exactly the next thing I wanted to ask you about because I know that you, along with some collaborators at the Institute for Corruption Studies and elsewhere, have done some very interesting work, as have others, using state-level data in the United States to try to test some of our hypotheses. And as you know, other researchers have used a similar approach in other large federal systems. So there are studies on Italy and India and Brazil and so forth. But focusing on the U.S. states for a moment, I want to ask you... Uh, just a, uh, quickly about this idea to do something equivalent to the World Bank Enterprise surveys in the United States. And I'm curious, how would you frame the questions? Because the World Bank Enterprise surveys, if memory serves, the corruption-related questions ask things like, how common is it for firms like yours or firms in your industry to make informal payments to government officials to get things done. And then they'll ask a question like, what percentage of annual sales do you... And then they'll have a similar question about government contracting. It's how often do firms like yours or firms in your industry need to make informal payments or gifts to win government contracts? And what percentage of the contract value? And so forth. So is your thought to ask very similar, maybe directly comparable questions in U.S. states? Or do you have a sense that the form that corruption takes, the ways the private sector in the United States is affected by corruption are sufficiently different that asking questions about basically straight up bribery and kickbacks will be less informative. I, I think I'm going to uh, stick to the World Bank format, but add more questions. First of all, I don't like the quantitative questions that the World Bank asks. I don't think you're going to get good answers for that. So for the U.S. firms, I don't think I'm going to ask them, you know, how much did you pay? What percentage of your revenues went to bribes? I don't think you're going to get good answers for that. But when it comes to scaling, like how often or like how damaging corruption is to your business, one through five, that, that's a reasonable question. But more interesting than that to me is different levels of government that the firms are dealing with. So, yes, firms are dealing with corruption, but at what level? corruption actually uh, disrupts their business? Is it the local? Is it the city? Is it the state? Is it the federal level? We have no information about that at this point. So someone is complaining about corruption in Illinois, but okay, so I'm living in Chicago. I don't, I think Chicago is corrupt, but is it because Cook County is corrupt? Is it because the city of Chicago corrupt or is it because the state of Illinois corrupt? We don't know what is happening here. That's one of the reasons I want to do this. And we can ask these questions to just people on the street, but I don't think you're going to get good answers for that because people don't really know. When, when they deal with public officials, a lot of the times they don't know which, public, you know which level of government they're dealing with. And then it's too much to ask to your dentist this question. But the purchasing manager of a firm, he or she might have a better answer for that. 
And uh, this is something that we are lacking here in the, in the United States, the level of the government and uh, the level of corruption at different level and also the type of corruption. Another thing is we have no idea the red tape that firms are dealing with. And a lot of times these concepts are being mixed up too. So if there's a lot of red tape, people just say, oh, this is corrupt. No, it's just red tape. It's just incompetency. Sometimes bureaucrats are incompetent. That doesn't mean they're corrupt. So we have to differentiate those things too. And that's the plan. I mean, that, that will be the differentiating point of the enterprise survey in the United States. So this enterprise survey plan in the United States, this is something that you have in mind to do going forward. But I know that you, again, at the Institute for Corruption Studies with some collaborators, have already done some work generating new kinds of corruption measures for individual U.S. states such that you can do various kinds of cross-state comparisons. Could you say a little bit about the, the nature of that work? And you might want to preface that by saying a little bit about an issue I know you thought about, which is why uh, you find the existing more commonly used measures of corruption at the individual state level in the U.S. unsatisfying. Yeah, the, the most commonly used measure uh, in the United in U.S. states is the, the Department of Justice's corruption convictions. So after right after Watergate, they, they, they set up the public integrity section in Justice Department and they put a bunch of attorneys there to go after corrupt public officials. And they publish the data, the number of convictions every year since 1976. So you can look at the number of public officials convicted for the crimes related to corruption over the last 40 years. And I use that index and everybody used that index. But there are a lot of problems with that index because, first of all, how Justice Department defines corruption is very, very broad. If a mailman steals mail, Justice Department says this is corruption. This is the example that I always give. If a public employee gets caught with drugs, they call it corruption. But it's not. It's just he's using illegal drugs. Uh, So the the definition is really broad. And also, um, you somehow have to uh, standardize the data. And the most common way of standardizing it, dividing the number of convictions by population, this gives a disadvantage to states like South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, because these states are not populated. So if you catch one mailman, the corruption spikes up. If in California you catch one mailman, it's not going to be doing anything significant to the index. Another big problem with the data, convictions data, is the seriousness of the crime. In the data set, convicting a governor is one data point, and convicting a mailman is one data point. I don't want to villainize the USPS employees here. Yeah, all the just... poor mail carriers <laughs> listening are wondering what, what we do. So, yes. So, so I apologize to them. But, so there, there are big problems with the data set. So it only covers one type of corruption, which is bribery or fraud. There is another type of corruption which is becoming more and more prevalent, in my opinion, me and Michael Johnston. We call it legal corruption. It is more about money in politics. If you're a local politician, so he's supposed to be working for the greater good, but is his actions affected by the political, the the campaign donations that he receives or the campaign endorsements that he receives? This is a, a big problem in our opinion. And we see this at every level of government and different government branches. So we designed a survey and we started surveying political reporters and investigative reporters in each state. We asked them 
questions regarding their perceptions on legal corruption and illegal corruption at the judicial, legislative, and executive branches of government. May I ask you, may I interrupt you just there to ask maybe a clarifying question. How did you define the concepts of legal and illegal corruption when you surveyed these political reporters from the states? I assume you didn't just say how much legal corruption. Oh, no, 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 no. We we define legal corruption as... I don't remember the exact definition that I gave them, but it's basically how much the actions of the legislator or the governor affected by the endorsements or the campaign contributions he or she receives. Mm-hmm. And the illegal corruption is outright bribery and fraud. So it's, it's more clear cut. So we asked these questions to the reporters. There are about thousand political and investigative reporters in the United States uh, uh, dealing with the issues related to corruption or politics in general. We identified them and then we send them an email survey. If they don't respond, we send them a reminder. If they don't, we call them and we get about 25 to 30% response. So we've done five waves of the survey. So each year we received about 280 responses. And of course, in some states, because the states are small, because the journalists, uh, the newspapers are uh, cutting reporters, the response rate is very, very low, especially in small states like Montana, Wyoming, Delaware. Uh, In big states, we have a decent response rate. But if you look at the results, the survey passes the smell test. When you do a survey like that, you don't want Washington to turning up to be the most corrupt state or state of Washington turning up more corrupt than New Jersey or Idaho turning up more corrupt than Florida. So we have the usual suspects there, you know, Illinois, New Jersey, Alabama, Mississippi, they, they turn out to be more corrupt states. And then on the clean side of the distribution, we have Colorado, we have Connecticut and you know, all these the states that you think are clean. When we started the survey, I was more interested in States like Arizona, Kentucky, West Virginia, the, because you know New Jersey is corrupt, you know Illinois is corrupt, but you have no idea what's happening these, in these other states. And I'm glad we did it. And in our first survey, Kentucky turned out to be the most corrupt state, actually. And then it stayed that way. And the participation rate in Kentucky was quite high. And I actually received emails from reporters in Kentucky congratulating me and saying that, thank you, you're doing this survey. Finally, someone is going to notice that this is this state is corrupt. We need to talk about this here. And another state was like that in Arizona and then Georgia. So yes, Illinois is corrupt. Yes, New Jersey is corrupt. But there are some other really corrupt states that we need to talk about it. And we can, by, by looking at these states, we can identify what the problems are. So why is Kentucky more corrupt? Why is Georgia more corrupt than Vermont or Maine? We can identify these and we can find solutions to these problems, really. Let me follow up on that because that was something I was going to ask you about. So one thing that can be done with these kinds of indexes and that is done with these kinds of indexes is to rank jurisdictions. So people do this with the Corruption Perceptions Index. Transparency International has their color-coded map. Everyone's always looking at the so-called league table. And you can do the same thing with these state indices. So there's yours, but there are certain other ones. The Center for Public Integrity has one. There, I think the Sunlight Foundation has something that's not quite this, but it's for more um, campaign lobbying regulation. So, so you can look at the rankings, and that can be very useful, especially when it calls attention to jurisdictions that, that need to be. <coughs> but 
for those of us who are social scientists or who are interested in drawing on a stronger evidence base to support different kinds of interventions, uh, we want to use this data to test hypotheses about causes and consequences of corruption. And that's how we want to frame the following question, which is that have you used this data to try to test some of those hypotheses? And given that there's already a fairly rich literature that does this with U.S. states using that Department of Justice Public Integrity section data that has those flaws that you identified, are there particular results that are surprising and dramatically different when you use your reporter survey data that we don't see in the results where we use the public integrity section data? First of all, when you use the perceptions index that we created, I did play with the data. I have been playing with data for a while. So again, if you look at the, the income distribution across states, yes, you do have uh, you know worse income distribution in a state which is more corrupt, and then it affects economic growth negatively and everything mm -hmm. else. And then when you look at the determinants of corruption, you know, voter participation goes up, corruption goes down, or the share of government goes up, corruption goes down. So far, I have not found conflicting results with the convictions index. So with the convictions index, you can only measure illegal corruption. So here we can also measure the effects of legal corruption. So what are the differential effects of legal and illegal corruption on several economic variables? This is the next step that I'm trying to do. And at this point, I only looked at if if there's a complementary or substitute relationship between legal and illegal corruption, I found a complementary relationship between them, and it's basically one feeding the other. So there are some states like Wisconsin where legal corruption is quite high and illegal corruption is quite low, and Oregon is also one of them. But on average, what you observe is if legal corruption is high in one state, illegal corruption is also high. That shows some sort of feedback uh, between the two. The next step that I'm going to look at is the differential effects of legal and corrupt, legal and illegal corruption on, on, say, inequality, on growth, or the factors affecting corruption. Do they affect these two types of corruption differently? And if they do, do they affect different branches of government differently? And if, say, legal corruption is high and if illegal corruption is high, do they interact together to affect income inequality? So these are different things that we can explore with the data that we create. And it's going to take next a couple of years of my time to, to do all these. But the data are available publicly. So anybody who wants to use the data, then you can use it and you can actually test all these things. Wonderful. So I wanted to ask you just one more question about the uh, the state data that you've been working on the state index that you've been working on it's something that intrigued me so i've looked a little bit about your data at your data and at some of the papers that you and colleagues have published and you include a variable for political culture <laughs> at the state level and i found this intriguing because there's a debate as of course you know in the international discussion of corruption about whether culture which is often a not very well defined fuzzy mm. concept has an effect on corruption levels. And at the international level, the attempts to come up with objective variables that are measures of culture has proven challenging. So, and again, I don't need to tell you this, but just in case any of our listeners are less familiar with this line of research, 
research will, will include as potential explanatory variables things like the percentage of the population that uh, adheres to a variety of religious traditions, or they might look to uh, the for countries that were at some point colonized in their history, the identity of the colonizing power or the legal family from which the system derived. Uh, there are a variety of, of attempts in that way to try to measure culture, but they're, they're crude and unsatisfying and they capture all these other issues. And then, of course, there's this challenge that sometimes the culture of corruption is the result, not the explanation. We know there's a culture of corruption because a, that's the way people are behaving. So I found it interesting that drawing on some historical work that I gather other scholars have done, you actually if I divided various U.S. states' memory services, I think it was roughly three categories yes. in terms of their cultural heritage. Say a little bit more about that and how that works. I think that's a very interesting approach to trying to capture this extremely elusive cultural variable uh, within a single polity, which is, of course, also significant because at the international level, variations in culture might also track variations in national boundaries in ways that make this complicated. Yes, uh, our work is based on Daniel Elazar's classification of political culture. So Elazar looks at who settled where in late 1800s and early 1900s in the United States. And depending on who settled where, he divides the country into three, moralistic, uh, individualistic, and traditionalistic. Massachusetts, for example, is a moralistic state. My, my home state. So Yes. And uh, Illinois is individualistic, and there are some parts in Illinois are moralistic. So we, according to Elazar, moralistic uh, states, people are more conscious about the public good, about the greater good, doing the... So working in the government is to serve the other people. Whereas in individualistic state, being a politician is like a professional job. He hypothesizes that moralistic states are likely to be less corrupt, individualistic states are likely to be more corrupt, slightly, and he doesn't actually say clearly nothing about the individualistic states, but you can kind of deduce that, and he doesn't say anything about the traditionalistic states. What we found is moralistic states are indeed using the convictions data. Moralistic states are, yes, they are less corrupt. And using the data that we produced, the, the perceptions data, they are also less likely to be corrupt. And individualistic states are also more corrupt. We couldn't find anything regarding the traditionalistic states. But but interesting thing is, um, similar to that is Rig Azlaner from University of Maryland. He does a lot of work on social trust and social capital. He has an excellent paper. He finds that the, the percentage of the Nordic people, actually, who settled where in the United States determines the trust level in those states. So if you look at states like Minnesota, Wisconsin, where uh, Swedish, Danish, Finnish people settled in the early 1900s, their trust, trust levels are higher than the uh, where the Spanish or the Italians settled. So. The deep determinants, in my opinion, are crucial in corruption research. So who settled where and how they set up the system 100 years ago determines the level of corruption to a certain extent today. And I think this is partly the multiple equilibrium or single equilibrium that we talked about today. It's just like, you know, the starting point of a state or a country is very important. So... Am I going to stay corrupt for a very long time? So 
at the very beginning, am I a corrupt country? And if I am, if I am in a, uh, in a corrupt equilibrium, how am I going to get out of that corrupt equilibrium? So should I reform the country with a big bang or should incremental changes, uh, incremental reforms will be enough or not? I think the deep determinants play a big role here like political culture. But of course, when you talk about the impact of culture on corruption across countries, it's quite different from what Al-Azhar did for the U.S. states. So I have no answer when it comes to the effects of culture on corruption, because even for religion, I don't know if religion has a deep impact on corruption. A lot of people argue that, you know, Protestantism is less likely to be corrupting than the Catholicism, but then you have countries like Germany kind of half and half. The other thing, and this maybe relates to the, the settlement point that makes me a little bit skeptical of this yeah. whole line. I'm intrigued by it. And it's one of the reasons I want to ask you about it. But my memory of the literature, let's focus, for example, on the, on the Protestantism, Catholicism, whatever, uh, and I could be wrong, this is yeah. based on memory, is that there does seem to be evidence that countries with a higher percentage of Protestants seem to be perceived as less corrupt. Yes. But there doesn't seem to be evidence that individual Protestants have different attitudes towards corruption than individual Catholics. You're right. Uh, And with respect to the settlement by people from the Nordic countries, I guess I have some instinctive skepticism because it might have the ring of plausibility because today these countries like Norway and Sweden uh, score very well on our international perceptions indexes. But back in 1800, when a lot of the settlement was taking place, we don't have indexes that go back that far, but the historians tell us that these societies actually had pervasive corruption at the time. So I guess I'm a little bit skeptical of this idea that the the Nordic peoples have something that they brought with them, because when they came, their societies were rife with nepotism and favoritism and all these other problems. That's a great point. I have nothing to say against that. It's it's, it's a great point, though. I, I didn't think about that. So no, this is this is fascinating, and it's it's terrific that you're doing this excellent work on trying to come up with better ways to measure corruption, both internationally uh, within countries across time and in the United States, both within and across individual state jurisdictions. Uh, we're basically nearing the end of our time, but before we closed, uh, I didn't want to end without giving you an opportunity to speak a little bit to something you alluded to before, which is uh, corruption in your country of origin from in, from in Turkey. Obviously, there's a lot going on right now. I know, I hope it's okay for me to ask about this because I know it's not the main focus of a lot of the research that you're doing, but I do know from having had conversations with you that you have a lot of thoughts about the developments in Turkey in the last several years or decades. Specifically, uh, there's a lot going on, but I meant specifically with, with respect to the corruption problem. And for many of our listeners who are not expert in Turkey, but who have a vague sense of what's going on, can you give me maybe the two to five minute take that you would have for for those of us who are trying to understand what's going on there and how that country is changing with respect to particularly its corruption problems? Well, uh, if you look at the data in Turkey and the data that we produced, and if you also follow the Turkish politics, until 1980s, the corruption that you observe in Turkey is mostly petty corruption. It's lower level corruption. We had, if I remember correctly, nephew of one major, uh, one prominent figure. He was always in the newspapers, but that was pretty much it. We did not have major scandals in Turkey until the 1980s. In 1980, there was a military takeover. And after that military takeover, 
Turkey got into a huge transformation. We opened up the exchange rate system and a neoliberal party took over. And that party also was also a start of a new populism in Turkey. Uh, in fact, the prime, prime minister, his name was uh, Turgut Özal, then he became the president. He has this very famous saying. They were talking about a new IMF program and he was going to cut the salaries or he was, was going to freeze the government workers' wages. And people asked, you know, how are they going to feed their families? And his response was, my civil servants know their business. So he basically gave the signal of go ahead. And during his time, corruption started spiking up, both grand and petty corruption. And it never stopped. So one thing I noticed, in, and you also too, it's, it's sticky. Once you become corrupt, you stay corrupt for a very long time. And that's exactly what happened to Turkey. And after uh, Özal government, it didn't matter which government took over. The next government was always more corrupt than the previous one. And right now, Turkey is not only corrupt, but also not democratic either. So we have the governing party is pretty autocratic and uh, they are basically literally actually getting away with murder. So at this point, it's pretty depressing to watch what's happening in Turkey. And my conversations with my friends and colleagues in Turkey, people are hopeless. They're not optimistic about it. They're not happy. The country as a whole, is not a happy country anymore. And it's deeply corrupt, and everybody is, they they seem to accept that. And they don't have the power to rise against that either. So I'm pretty upset about that. I don't know what to say, what else to say about that either. But uh, we'll, we'll start, you know, we'll, we'll keep writing about it, and then let's see what happens. So I hate to end on such a pessimistic note, but I like to believe that if people like you and people in our listening audience continue to work harder on these issues to better understand them, it's not going to make things better in the near term, certainly in a country like Turkey, but it can only help. So so thank you very much. Uh, thank you for your time. Again, my guest today has been Ozhan Cher, the director of the Institute for Corruption Studies at Illinois State University. Very much appreciate your time and for sharing your thoughts and for more information about your interesting research projects. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. 